Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our blessed Father, we earnestly ask of you now, as we open your word to hear it preached, to hear it expounded, Father, may such an exercise for us not be in vain, we pray, but may it all be done by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit, taking the truth of your holy, infallible word preached and taught and translating that to our hearts today in such a way that as your people, Lord, we will be more and more sanctified by the truth of your holy word and thereby more conformed into the image of your eternal Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray too, blessed Father, as we consider even more layers of truth concerning the great doctrine of the church. We pray, Lord, that our churchmanship will be more firmly grounded and rooted in conformity to your word and fleshed out more faithfully in our lives as your saints who covenant together here in a holy membership at Providence Reformed Baptist Church. These, these things we hold, we lift before your throne of grace, trusting in you and looking to you for their fulfillment according to your will and by your grace and power through the mediation and on the basis of the very merits of Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray, amen. I invite you to take God's word and let's turn to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Today, of course, is the closing of our annual four-part series on keeping Christian unity. And the series ends each year in Titus chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me, uh, let me do make one clarification if it was not clear with what I was saying a moment ago uh, preceding our reading of the Nicene Creed. If you deny the truth of the creed, if you reject the truth of the creed, which is the truth of scripture, then you are not, and frankly you cannot be, born again. You're not a Christian. But if you would say to me, but I can't comprehend what it's saying. I don't deny it and I don't reject it, but I don't comprehend what it's saying. And then my answer to you would be, well, who does? Who does? Because we're talking about that which is eternal and infinite, and we're not eternal and infinite. And we don't have eternal and infinite understanding. So we apprehend the truth, but none of us comprehends it that the Son of God is eternally generated from the Father? Nobody comprehends that, but we apprehend it. And that's an important difference, so I hope that's made clear. Titus chapter 3, we're looking today at healthy relationships for a healthy church. We're going to start at verse 9, reading to the very end of this chapter. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so reads the infallible, certain, and sure word of the living God. Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, is the last portion of Paul's epistle to this young minister named Titus, whom Paul affectionately called my true child in a common faith. Paul's main objective for writing his letter to Titus was to encourage this burgeoning pastor to put what remained in order. That's in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This statement established both the tone and aim of this entire epistle. There were things in these Cretan churches which Titus oversaw that needed to be straightened out, much like a dental specialist straightens and aligns crooked teeth. Titus, therefore, was charged by Paul with the task of correcting and setting straight certain doctrines and practices in these churches which had become defective. The ultimate outcome of carrying out his commission would be the restoring of spiritual healthiness to these Gentile churches. Now, as an overview of this entire letter, there are four essential marks of a healthy church that emerge from Paul's instruction and exhortation to Titus. The first mark of the healthy church is godly leadership. This is covered by Paul in chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. In this passage, it is very clear that if a local church is to be truly healthy, it must have either a man or men in place who are biblically qualified with spiritual and moral integrity to faithfully shepherd God's church. Without godly leadership, a local church will fall into all kinds of terrible and deep problems, both relationally and doctrinally. But of course, on the reverse, if the present leadership is not meeting the biblical standards set forth by the Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen to Titus, then that too will prove just as damaging for the health of a local church as well. So then Titus was to seek out, with the help of these congregations, Christian men who in fact met the apostolic standard for biblical elders and who could thus be set apart as the men God wanted to lead his church. The second mark of a healthy church, which services here in Paul's letter to Titus, is a godly membership. A godly membership. This necessity for church healthiness is covered in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. One of the most significant things about this passage is that it shows us the vast importance and premium God places in every people group in the local church. Older men and women, younger men and women, and even Christians in the workplace. That would be in our vernacular. Of course, you read what Paul is writing about. He's writing about slaves. Each of these different people groups or genders, different genders and ages, they are called by God to emulate certain godly qualities and characteristics. In other words, it's not just the pastor or the pastors, the elders of the church, who should be expected to demonstrate godly character. Rather, if we as a whole are really saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, then we will all be living lives which are godly, holy, and righteous. Now, this, of course, will vary in every Christian due to the degree of how God is working his sanctifying grace in them. Yet, nevertheless, as Titus chapter 2 and verse 12 very plainly teaches, it is the assumed reality of every true believer in Christ that their lives will be characterized by renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions to thereby live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is for the whole entire membership of the local church. The third mark of the healthy church found here in Titus is that a church which is healthy is a church that sets forth a godly witness a godly witness. This is the teaching of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. What is so notable about this passage is that being a witness for Christ is as much a matter of who we are in Christ as it is concerning what we do in his name. Therefore, Paul charges these Cretan churches through Titus to remember 
who they are as Christians, who they were as non-Christians, and what God has done to save them. By being mindful of these things, a local church will relate to this ungodly world in a manner that is glorifying to God, which is the supreme purpose of our witness as Christians in the first place. The final mark of a healthy church is that a healthy church is a church which teaches sound doctrine. A healthy church is a church which teaches sound doctrine. This mark of spiritual healthiness is woven throughout Paul's entire letter to Titus. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 9, the qualified church elder must be a man holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Furthermore, in chapter 1, verse 13, the church elders are called to rebuke false teachers sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And lastly, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul personally commissions Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So if a local church is to be healthy by God's standard, it must be a church where sound doctrine is faithfully upheld and taught. This means that the whole counsel of God's word is explained and delivered without shame or apology. It also means that those doctrines in God's word, which are especially difficult to understand or accept, must be welcomed by the church with humility and cherished as the truth God wants us to receive. And as one final observation, when a local church is teaching sound doctrine, there is then no room for false doctrine to invade the church and lead people astray. Very important. But with all this said and covered about the marks of a healthy church in the bulk of this letter to Titus, Paul now draws this very brief epistle to a close, and his concluding remarks to Titus have to do with four different relationships that any local church would have to interface with. Two of these relationships are very negative, having to do with false teachers and factitious people. And the other two are very positive, having to do with fellow servants and faithful friends. Yet the point of all four relationships within the context of Titus is that we're shown by God's design how such relationships can be and should be healthy in a redemptive framework. To put this point in the form of a question, we could say this. What would be the most healthy way for a local church to relate to false teachers or factitious people or fellow servants or faithful friends? How can we maintain these relationships within the orientation of the gospel itself? Well, answering these questions brings us now to our exposition of Titus chapter 3, 9 through 15. In this passage, we will consider how we are instructed to relate with false teachers, factitious people, fellow servants, and faithful friends. Let's consider now each of these in turn. First, our relating to false teachers. Look with me at Titus 3 and verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, based on Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, the Cretan churches had been overrun by a group of false teachers. In fact, one of the chief reasons that elders were to be appointed in these churches was for the purpose of dealing with these false teachers. However, in handling false teachers, Paul instructed Titus that not everything they taught was to be necessarily answered. While it was true that the elders were to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, yet not everything they taught deserved a worthy reply. So here in Titus 3, 9, Paul returns to this matter concerning the false teachers from chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. But specifies very clearly to Titus as to what he and the rest of the church must avoid in how they interface with such people. Hence Paul writes, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, it should be pointed out from the start that the key word in this passage is the term translated avoid. This word comes from a Greek verb that means to step around or to step aside or more literally 
to shun. Paul employs the same word in 2 Timothy 2.16 when he exhorts Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Both Titus and Timothy were called to respond in the same fashion to certain teachings promoted by false teachers. They were to purposely turn themselves away from those teachings, not to mention from the false teachers themselves, because they lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, what specifically was Titus and the Cretan churches instructed to avoid in the false teachers? In this single verse, Paul mentions four particular categories of errors which false teachers were espousing that the Christians on Crete were to avoid. First, they were to avoid foolish controversies. The word translated foolish is derived from a Greek term that means stupid or dull, whereas the word controversies is the translation of a Greek noun that refers to questions or speculations that are seriously disputed since they have no basis in the truth. In fact, Paul uses this very same term in 2 Timothy 2.23 where he implores Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies knowing that they breed quarrels. So then here in Titus 3.9, we're being commanded to turn away from futile arguments and speculations about matters of philosophy or in some cases theology that are based purely on human reason and imagination rather than on God's word. For example, how many angels can light upon the ball of a pen would be a very foolish controversy. But that really was a controversy way back in church history. Or to get into an argument with a Jehovah's Witness over celebrating Birthdays or national holidays is nothing but a foolish controversy. Furthermore, I would not argue with Mormons over whether or not they will become gods and rule their own planets. That's just not worth the time. <laughs> okay, such a belief is a stupid speculation that is not even worth the energy to consider. And the reason why is because these kinds of controversial teachings prove themselves to be, as Paul tells Titus, unprofitable and worthless. There is nothing gained of redeeming value by debating over uh, such absurd ideas and speculations. Instead, all you really end up doing by engaging in such rancor is breeding a quarrel, as 2 Timothy 2.23 plainly warns. In short, you generate a fight which is what a quarrel is. You generate a fight. Hence, what we must do in obedience to Titus 3.9 is to stay away from foolish controversies which clearly have no basis in the Word of God. Or to put this in a very positive way, the only thing worth fighting for and defending is the truth of God's Word. And with this latter statement, let me add another layer of understanding as it relates to Titus 3.9. Paul is not telling us here that we must always avoid every controversy and discussion concerning the Christian faith. Hence, what I just talked about regarding the Nicene Creed. The Word of God is very plain about this. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16, we're commanded, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In Jude verse 3, we're told to contend earnestly for the faith, not your personal faith in Jesus, but the body, the content of doctrine in Scripture. So the faith, contend earnestly for it, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Then, of course, just take the example of Paul himself. The same man who wrote Titus 3.9 was the same man whose custom it was to defend the gospel in every city beginning first in Jewish synagogues. In Philippians 1.7, Paul referred to himself as one who lived in defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the point of all these passages is simply to tell us as believers, there is a hill worth dying on. Yes, there is. There is a fight worth fighting. What is it? It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The revealed body of doctrine in the word of God. When God's word comes under attack, the church had better be ready to stand up and speak out 
in defense of the truth. And that's the reason why in the history of the church we have the ecumenical creeds in the first five centuries and we have later we have the reformed confessions. That's why that's there. But getting back to our text here in Titus 3.9, when it comes to foolish controversies, when it comes to stupid speculations that have no bearing whatsoever on the redemption of a soul, we must avoid them at all costs. Avoid them at all costs. They are unprofitable. They're worthless. They breed nothing but quarrels. Secondly, Paul instructed Titus that the Christians on Crete we're not to be involved with interpretations of genealogies. Now, Paul was not, of course, referring here to the many genealogies of the Old and New Testaments. Those genealogies were critical for determining the God-given lineage of the priesthood, the kings of Judah and Israel, and even the Messiah. Paul's warning here to Titus concerned rather the many fanciful and allegorical interpretations of such genealogies that had fascinated many Jews for centuries. Such an obsession with genealogies combined with reading into them mythical ideas about one's pedigree was nothing more than a carnal diversion away from the saving gospel. Hence, Titus and the Cretan churches were to flee such fleshly detours which the false teachers were masters at working people down such paths away from the truth of Scripture. Thirdly, they were to avoid dissensions. By dissensions, Paul is referring to all kinds of self-centered competition and strife about the truth. This means practically that as important as it is to stand up and defend the truth of God when it is under attack, we must never under any circumstances make the fight for truth a personal issue. A personal issue. I'll say it this way. Our egos must be taken completely out of the fight. It's not about us. It is not our reputation that's on the line. No. What matters is that God's word is under attack by false teachers, and our line of defense is to counter the false doctrine they are promoting by proclaiming the truth of God's word. Thus, we keep the fight for faith in the word of God and keep God's glory as the central aim. This is what Martin Luther did with Erasmus over the controversy concerning the doctrine of free will. This is what George Whitfield did with John Wesley over the controversy of the doctrine of predestination. And it's what Charles Spurgeon did with the liberal theologians of his day and what he called the downgrade controversy over the doctrine of the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture. In each of these examples, these men of God avoided the temptation to make these controversial matters a platform for personal gain and self-promoting glory. It was not about them, and they proved it by how they handled their defense for the truth of God's word. They followed Titus 3.9. They avoided dissensions. Finally, they were to avoid quarrels about the law. Now, in Paul's day, striving about the law was a big issue. And it was a big issue because there were so many Jews converted to Christ out of Judaism. So the burning question on the mind of every Jewish Christian was, well, what about the law? What about the law? And, and to make matters worse, <clears throat> there arose a group of false teachers called Judaizers who were advocating to both Jewish and Gentile Christians, but especially the Gentile Christians, that you must obey the law if you're going to be saved. In fact, it was the Judaizers who invaded the Galatian churches, upsetting the faith of these young Christians by telling them that Christ was not enough to save them. Instead, they needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses if they were to be right with God. All of this was quarreling about the law. Initially, however, this was a serious enough matter that the early church had no choice but to address. Thus we read in Acts chapter 15 that the leadership of the early church came together in Jerusalem to deal with these disputes over the law and settle the, matter, settle the whole matter once and for all. Their united conclusion and their message to the Judaizers was simply this in summary. 
This is Acts 15, verse 11, by the way. The Apostle Peter said, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Following this confession, it was established for all time that the law was not a means of salvation. Of course, it never was even under the Old Covenant. Hence, there should be no quarreling over the law in this regard because we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, in wrapping up how we relate to false teachers based on Titus 3.9, what is it that we can say? It's this. Arguing theology, doctrine, or morality with those who distort or disregard God's word is unavoidably fruitless. Unlike true believers in Christ who accept the authority of Scripture and desire to discuss and apply its meaning, Titus 3.9 warns us against engaging with those who have no desire to embrace the truth of God's word. And let me just, let me just say this as something for you to remember. Okay, Write it down and remember this. If they're not teachable, they're not reachable. If they are not teachable, they are not reachable. Remember what Proverbs 18 verse 2 says about the fool? The fool takes no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Wow, the world is full of a lot of fools. Well, so is the visible church. I said visible church. If they're not teachable, they are not reachable. So with such people, Titus 3.9 says, very simply, we just must turn ourselves away. Just turn ourselves away. That's to say, while there may be a time and place when they should be engaged for the sake of the truth, yet, by and large, false teachers are to be avoided, by and large. And this is how we relate to false teachers. But from our relating with false teachers, let us now consider our relating to factitious people. Look at me in verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. These are perhaps some of the hardest words in the New Testament scriptures concerning what would be a particular case in the matter of corrective church discipline. It has to do with a certain type of person who may rise up in the life of a local church, a person whom Paul describes as one who stirs up division. This expression, stirs up division, is the translation of the Greek term eritikos. Its root meaning has to do with the power of choosing, but came to characterize those people, now listen closely, it came to characterize those people who were self-willed in their opinions and assertions which they placed above the truth, refusing even to consider views contrary to their own. Sounds like they're unteachable. They are. In short, they are a law to themselves, having no concern for either the truth or unity. It is very significant, very significant, that from this Greek word, eretikos, is actually derived the term heretic. Most interesting. But here in Titus 3.10, Paul is employing this word to describe anyone in the church who is both divisive and disruptive. And what we must especially understand about such a person is that they are some of the most destructive and dangerous people that any local church would have to face. Now why is that? Why is that? R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Titus 3 and verse 10, he answers this question by helping us to see what is behind the factitious or divisive person. Now listen closely to this. Here's what R. Kent Hughes writes in observation. He says, those who are divisive lust for the fray, incite its onset, and delight in being able to conquer another person. For them, and I have this underlined, for them, victory means everything. Did you hear that? For the divisive person, victory means 
everything. He says, so in an argument, they twist words, call names, threaten, manipulate procedures, and attempt to extend the debate as long as possible and along as many fronts as possible. And again, why, I mean, why would they do that? Why would they extend, extend the debate? Because victory means everything. In John Calvin's exposition of Titus 3.10, he said of the factitious person that there is no end to their quarrels and disputes. They will never lack words, and they will gain fresh courage from their shameless, bold endeavors to keep on fighting. And Calvin observed that for faithful pastors... Such divisive people in the church are the tools of Satan to entangle them and draw them away from their diligence, that is the diligence of the faithful pastor, and calling to shepherd the flock of God. This is why John Calvin warned the church of such people by saying this. He said, this person so described includes all ambitious, unruly, contentious people who led away by sinful passions disturb the peace of the church and raise disputing. In short... Every person who, by his overweening pride, breaks up the unity of the church. Whenever the stubbornness of any person grows to such an extent that led by selfish motives, he either separates from the body or draws away some of the flock or interrupts the course of sound doctrine, in such a case, we must boldly resist. Those are some of the most well-written words in commentary on Titus 3.10. Needless to say, the factitious or divisive person in the church is not to be taken for granted or handled with kid gloves. This is a dangerous person. And they're only out for themselves. They don't care about you. And they don't care about the truth, and they don't care about unity. It's all about them. It's their agenda. They are an opposing menace to the peace and unity of any local church. So how then does God inspire his apostle to instruct the church in the way they must deal with divisive people? Well, listen to the rest of Titus 3.10. You can just follow right along with me. Look at it. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, what does that mean? What's the application that we are to actually follow here? And well, it's really very simple and direct. A factitious person in the church is to be given only two warnings to repent. They're to be admonished concerning their divisive behavior. How many times? Only twice. Only twice. And if these two efforts in calling them to repent prove ineffective and unfruitful, then the church and its leaders are to do what? What does the scripture say? I'm not making this up. Have nothing more to do with them. Somebody says, well, what does that mean? It means have nothing more to do with them. Nothing more to do with them. That expression is the translation of a Greek term that means literally to reject. To reject. Moreover, it's used as, as what's a, called a present middle imperative. That's the grammar construction of that verb there, a present middle imperative. Now, now what is that saying? The rejection is a divine command of God, and it is a rejection that is total. And ongoing. So, how do we understand this? How do we understand this in the simplest of terms? Well, here it is. You don't keep company with them. You don't break bread with them. You don't do business with them. You don't have little private meetings with them. And if they've already left the church, 
then you don't, under any circumstances, seek to reach out to them because you think, in your own pride, somehow you can help them and win them back. No, you can't. No, you can't. God says, not Pastor Kurt, God says, have nothing more to do with them. And God means what he says. But I dare say that there are many Christians who do not take God very seriously when it comes to this. Because many Christians in their naivete think to themselves, well, surely they can't be that bad. Well, you need to come out from under the rock where you've been hibernating. Open up your Bible, read it, listen carefully to what it says. Oh, and then by the way, don't just read it to yourself. Read it with the rest of the church, shall we? What have other faithful men of God said concerning this in its application? But there are Christians. And obviously, obviously, I'm saying this from having seen it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears. Through all my years of pastoring, it's amazing too, because I've seen it in every church I've pastored, even here. Even here. Not recently, thank you, Lord, several years ago, but even here. Divisive people, having been warned, refusing to repent, they're rejected, they're gone. But yet, there's always, there's always that Christian who says, but you know, I think I can be more merciful than God. I think I can be more loving than God. I just think that's just so harsh. Well, that Christian needs to be seriously rebuked for several other things. Their arrogance, their ignorance, and the fact that they really just do not take God seriously. They don't. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. These people are not a joke. I thank God that such, at this present moment, by God's divine grace, that such people are not within this immediate church family. And you don't know how much this pastor prays for God to protect us from such people rising up among our own number, speaking twisted things to lead the disciples astray. You say, where are you getting that? Acts chapter 20, check it out. That's a constant prayer of mine. Well, beloved, you need to be praying that too. That should not be just the prayer of the pastor. That should be the prayer of this church, the intercession of this church. God, protect us. Protect us. You really care about the unity of this church? You're going to be praying that prayer. You're going to make it a serious intercession, a constant, regular intercession in your prayer life. Well... You might ask the question, why is God's command so severe? I mean, why, why is it so severe? Why is God being so harsh about divisive people? Well, the answer to this question is found in the very next verse. Titus 3.11, look at it. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. In these words, we are given by divine inspiration what is really going on in the heart of a factitious, divisive person. First, Paul says they are warped. This term used in the perfect tense describes a factitious person in a continual state of moral perversion, being twisted and turned out in their thinking, wholly out of touch with the truth. They are warped. Second, they are sinful. This is a present tense verb. It means the device of man is sinning by deliberately missing the mark of God's divine standard 
through his refusal to receive correction and repent. Finally, they are self-condemned. This term describes the divisive person as someone who knows that in his deliberate refusal to abandon his self-chosen views, he is wrong and stands condemned by his own better judgment. Is it any wonder then? Honestly, is it any wonder that God commands us as the church to have nothing more to do with divisive people? A person in this spiritual condition, in this settled pattern of sin, they cannot be reached. They do not care about the truth. They do not care about the peace and unity of the church. All they care about, as I have said, as I have belabored this point, all they care about is their self-willed agenda. In other words, it's their way or the highway. And they will do whatever it takes to win their agenda and reach their goal. And listen to me, as long as people in the church give them an audience, they will continue the fight. Because what have we heard this morning about them? Victory means everything. Friend, that's a dangerous person. There's no humility in that. No humility in that. Victory means everything to the divisive man or woman. So God, in his infinite wisdom, orders us as his church to admonish the factitious person again. How many times? Twice. That's it, twice. And don't think... Well, I think that's a metaphor. No, I think twice means twice. Once and then twice. Okay? One time, second time. That's it. That's it. And if these two efforts fail to bring them to repentance, then we're to cut off all our ties with such a person because they are warped and sinful being self-condemned. This is how we as the church relate to factitious people. But from our relating to factitious people and false teachers, Paul now turns our attention to a more positive relationship, and that is our relating to fellow servants. Look at me in verses 12 and 13. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. In these words, Paul now gives Titus specific instructions for his ministry to fellow servants of Christ. And breaking this down, Paul bids from Titus two favors in particular. First, to visit him. Second, to care for these fellow servants. First of all, Paul wanted Titus to do his best to come to him as he stayed in Nicopolis for the winter. What stands out in this request is the continual need for Christian fellowship in the fact that God's work is never carried out alone. On the one hand, there's the continual need for Christian fellowship. As great and mature as a Christian as Paul the Apostle was, yet he knew that God had not called him to be a lone ranger in the kingdom. He needed and desired the constant fellowship of other believers. Why was this? It's because that is how God created the body of Christ to function. We are interdependent on one another, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. On the other hand, the work of God is never carried out alone. There are certain great leaders in the church who stand out to us. We, we single them out. So the aforementioned Paul, then there's Peter, John, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Owen, Bunyan, Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon. So many others we can name. We single them out. These men stand out to us in church history, and we admire them for what God accomplished through them, yet they were never alone. They were never alone in the work God called them to do. They had companions, co-workers who came alongside them, helped them in the work of God. And so Paul needed Titus for the ministry God had called him to carry out. Second of all, Paul wanted Titus to care for 
the fellow servants he would be sending to Crete. There was first the possibility of Artemis or Tychicus coming to Crete to actually be Titus's replacement for the continuation of the work among the Cretan churches. The great lesson here for us should be this. God never runs out of servants to send to in his vineyard to continue the work of the ministry. He never runs out of servants to send in his vineyard to continue the work of the ministry. Titus, Titus may leave, but there'll be another God called man to come in his place. One particular passage of scripture I have referenced here under this point is from the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Think about what we're drawing from that passage and application to what we're looking at here. God made it very clear to Joshua, Moses is dead. Moses is dead. There, there, there is like a loud thud there. There is a permanency there. Moses is gone, Joshua. Moses is not coming back, Joshua. So what are you to do? Well, that's it. Over. Guys, pack up. Back to Egypt. Is that what God said to Joshua? No. He said, now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm going to give to them, to the people of Israel. God had another servant in place, ready to go. Moses is gone, but God's work is continuing. God's kingdom is continuing. Continuing. Well, that's rather humbling for pastors, for missionaries. The church will go on. The church has gone on without Augustine, without Edwards, without Spurgeon, without Lloyd-Jones. Still here. Christ is still building his church. And we say, thank God for that. Thank God it did not depend on those men from the past. And I really thank God it does not depend on me. Jesus Christ is the one building his church. And so he's the one who calls, who sends. He's the one who will provide his servants to continue the work. Moses is gone. Now comes Joshua. The work goes on. But not only was Titus going to be replaced by a fellow servant in Crete, he was also going to have the great privilege of caring for some men of God Paul was sending his way. Zenos and Apollos would be coming in Titus's direction. So Paul instructs this young pastor to make certain that these men lack nothing on their future journey once they leave Crete. Now, what is this example teaching us? Okay, here's the biblical principle. The spirit of mutual support and care should always characterize the church of Christ for the servants of Christ when it is in our power to do so. This example reminds us again of the aforementioned interdependency which we share with one another as believers in Christ in the work of the kingdom. This is why missionaries need our support. This is why churches support their pastors. This is why we should always be looking for ways that we can build up fellow servants in the work of the kingdom. So then our relationship to fellow servants in Christ is a very rich and spiritually dependent relationship. And here's, here's a point that I belabored last week and the week before last, and here I am again. We need each other. 
We need each other. We need each other's time, talents, treasures to enable us to press on in the work God has called each one of us to, to carry out in our local church context. But even more importantly, the fellowship and faith of fellow believers to fellow servants in Christ is a deeply lavish gift of God that no Christian in the ministry can do without. So on a very personal level, as your pastor, I say to you, I need you. I can't do without you. Your gifts, your callings, how the Lord has equipped you. I need you. So there it is. Mark it down. Record it. I said it. And it's even recorded for sermon audio for ages to come. But as our final point of study, from relating to fellow servants, to factitious people, to false teachers, let's consider lastly our relating to faithful friends. Look at me at verses 14 and 15. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In closing his letter to Titus, Paul gives a last word on faithful friends. Like Titus and the other elders on Crete, the people among whom they ministered were also to learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The great lesson here applies to all the church. What is it? It is this. It is not possible for a pastor or even a group of pastors, i.e. elders, to meet all the many urgent needs of a congregation. Not only is there not enough time for one man to do it all, but other believers in the church invariably have spiritual gifts and abilities that the pastor does not have by which certain good works can be accomplished and certain urgent needs of fellow believers can actually be met. Again, this is how the body works. Okay, We're interdependent. But out of this spirit-filled, Christ-loving culture breeds an harmonious, compassionate, and serving church where the character of true friendship is cultivated and thrives. This is friendship built on a mutual faith in Christ and love for one another as Christ has loved us. It is hence a friendship that seeks the greatest good and benefit for fellow believers by serving them selflessly, expecting nothing in return, but only that they will be edified further in Jesus Christ. It is therefore a friendship which finds its orbit centered in the gospel. Thus Paul's final word to Titus is a word of sweet endearment from and to his faithful friends in the gospel. All who are with me send greetings to you, Paul writes. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The bond we share as with, with faithful friends in the gospel is a bond that holds us together for how long? For all eternity. It is a bond preserved by grace and cultivated by love in the faith, and out of this kind of bond, there will come a devotion to good works where urgent needs are met that will not prove to be unfruitful. Well, in closing our study of Titus 3, 9 through 15, let me leave us with at least two general principles that we should take from this passage and apply together as a local church. Principle number one. It takes biblical wisdom and discernment to know how we must approach different kinds of people both in and outside of the church. False teachers and factitious people are to be treated very differently from the way we would approach fellow servants and faithful friends in the gospel. Their spiritual condition is different. Their spiritual motivations are different. Some of them are for Christ Others are against Christ. So then our approach to each person must be governed and directed by the wisdom God gives us in his word. As opposed to 
leaning on our own understanding or sentiments or even our natural temperaments. How we understand people and approach them must come from God's word and what God says in his word, no matter how much God's wisdom may counter our own feelings or understanding. Principle number two, the gospel must drive our relationships. The gospel must drive our relationships. Healthy relationships for a healthy church are compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that drives how we relate to false teachers by calling them out for their false doctrine, rebuking them sharply so that they would be one to Christ. It is also the gospel that drives how we relate to factitious people by warning them several times, no, by warning them twice, of their divisive and destructive conduct against the peace and unity of the church for which Christ is the head. And then cutting off all ties with them if they refuse to repent to show them that our loyalty, our faithfulness is to Christ and his church, not to those who would seek to divide and destroy the church. Finally, it is the gospel that drives how we relate to fellow servants and faithful friends with whom we are bonded by grace and love in Jesus Christ. The gospel compels us to serve one another and edify one another and pray for one another and receive one another as Christ has done in our own behalf. Moreover, the gospel urges us to help each other in our pursuit of holiness and to press us on in greater faithfulness as we would fulfill the calling God has placed on us as his people. The point of all this, brothers and sisters, is very simple. That as Christians, how we relate to others is countercultural to the world around us that is driven by self and opposed to Christ. All our relationships, both in and outside the church, are to be marked by grace and holiness. Therefore, it is to be to this end that we pray and plead with God to sanctify us all more deeply in how we relate to all people everywhere. That our relationships would bear witness to the power of the gospel and what God has thus done in Christ to save sinners for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, how rich, how deep, how edifying, how convicting, how clear is the truth of your holy scriptures. And we thank you this morning, Lord, for the exposition of your word in Titus that has once again reminded us, refreshed us, renewed our thinking to what and to who the church is, to how the church your people are to function relationally. And Lord, we know as we look at your standard that it is a standard because it is divine. It therefore takes divine power to carry out. And so we earnestly pray for greater spiritual growth and thereby greater spiritual healthiness for us all, both individually and collectively, in this local congregation of your saints. That you will sanctify us, Lord, more and more to be a people of God who bear a clearer, more conclusive, and faithful witness to the power of the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in how we do treat one another, but not only inside this family of your saints, but even outside there in the world, Lord, where you have placed us also to be the salt 
and to be the light that you've called us to be and that we are in truth in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. These things we pray earnestly, these petitions we hold before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his sake, amen.